On March 8, 2023, the United States Senate voted to strike down District of Columbia Council Bill 240416, a law that would overhaul Washington, D.C.'s criminal code. The federal nullification of this controversial bill had already passed in the House of Representatives, and following the overwhelming bipartisan vote in the Senate, the resolution now goes to the desk of President Joe Biden, who has stated that he will allow it to pass. Although the proposed D.C. law in question has been hailed by some as an essential codification of criminal justice reform, it has also been slammed by critics for lowering the criminal penalties of violent crimes such as carjacking and burglary. This is particularly relevant due to D.C.'s status as the most dangerous state or territory in the United States, with roughly 1,000 violent crimes per 100,000 residents. However, many still voted against striking down the bill, as doing so could be interpreted as an infringement on D.C.'s home rule. Although D.C. does not have congressional representation, it has its own district council, as well as three electoral votes in presidential elections under the 23rd Amendment. The debate over whether or not D.C. should become a state has become increasingly tense since home rule in D.C. began in 1975. Proponents of D.C. statehood generally cite the fact that D.C. residents are entitled to political representation as taxpayers, while opponents are often concerned that D.C. statehood would defeat the purpose of the federal government operating outside the bounds of the state government. As D.C. statehood would almost certainly add two more Democrats to the Senate, the D.C. statehood argument is overwhelmingly partisan, with most Democrats supporting statehood and most Republicans opposing it. Alternative solutions to statehood, such as incorporating D.C. into Maryland or Virginia, or giving D.C. non-state representation in Congress, have been proposed, but D.C. remains an autonomous federal district without congressional representation to this day. This raises the question, how did D.C. even end up in this situation? Prior to the ratification of the Constitution, several cities acted as the provisional capital of the United States, including Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, York, Pennsylvania, Princeton, New Jersey, Annapolis, Maryland, Trenton, New Jersey, and New York, New York. After the Constitution was ratified in 1787 and the United States of America was officially established, Philadelphia became the U.S. capital until 1790. That year, the Residence Act of 1790 was passed by Congress, providing for the establishment of a federal district to serve as the national capital. In order to get the apprehensive southern states to ratify the Constitution, the Federalist-controlled Congress agreed to put this capital in the Upper South. New York City would act as the national capital until 1800, when Congress held its first session in Washington, D.C. Many buildings in D.C. were famously burned down by British forces during the War of 1812, and as a result, the Capitol building would not open in its current form until 1868. In 1847, due to the impending prohibition of the slave trade in D.C., 
the portion of the district south of the Potomac River was ceded to Virginia and became the city of Alexandria. In the lead-up to the Civil War, the geographic location of the capital would return to prominence, as D.C. is wedged between Virginia, which seceded to join the Confederacy, and Maryland, a slave state that nonetheless remained in the Union. Following the Civil War, segregation and Jim Crow laws took hold in D.C. and would remain in power until the 1950s. Around this time, D.C. experienced a major demographic shift widely believed to be the result of the phenomenon known as white flight. In 1961, the 23rd Amendment was ratified, allowing D.C. residents to vote in presidential elections. Over a decade later, in 1973, the District of Columbia Home Rule Act was passed, giving D.C. a government akin to that of a state. One civil rights activist who was once considered a D.C. hero became active in the district's local politics around this time. However, his name would soon become synonymous with vice and misconduct. I'm going to tell you all about him right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 84th episode of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Spotify for Podcasters. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Spotify for Podcasters. Marion Barry Jr. was born on March 6, 1936, in Itabina, Mississippi. Barry was one of eight siblings in his poor rural black family. When Barry was four years old, his father died unexpectedly of natural causes. The next year, his family relocated to Memphis, Tennessee, where Barry's mother remarried. Barry would later recall that some of his earliest memories were of his experiences with racial discrimination and segregation in Tennessee. As a young child, Barry and his siblings had to walk to school, as only white students could use school buses. However, Barry's childhood was also his introduction to the power of civil rights activism. In his teenage years, Barry worked on a paper route and when the newspaper he worked for offered a free trip to New Orleans, Louisiana for any paperboys who gained 15 new customers, Barry quickly surpassed this quota. But due to the potential cost of chartering two separate buses to adhere to Louisiana's segregation laws, the newspaper refused to send any black paperboys to New Orleans. In response, Barry and several other black paperboys went on strike and refused to deliver papers, only stopping this boycott once the newspaper agreed to give them a free trip to St. Louis, Missouri, a non-segregated city. In 1955, Barry began attending Lemoyne Owen College, a historically black Christian university in Memphis, where he became president of the school's NAACP chapter. 
Barry was also active in the school's newspaper, even almost getting expelled after criticizing one white donor's remark that a black people should be, quote, treated as a younger brother and not as an adult. Barry graduated in 1958 with a BS in chemistry before attending Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he was arrested multiple times for his participation in sit-ins at segregated lunch counters. Then, in 1960, Barry was elected as the first chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the largest student-run civil rights organization in America. After graduating from Fisk in 1960 with an MS in organic chemistry, Marion Barry married his first wife, Blanty Evans, in 1962. He also began studying in a doctoral chemistry program at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, but soon dropped out in order to focus on his work with the SNCC. After divorcing his wife in 1964, Barry moved to Washington, D.C. in 1965 to manage the National SNCC office. In D.C., Barry organized nationwide peaceful protests against racial segregation and discrimination, and he quickly became involved in the D.C. home rule movement, seeing that the predominantly black district had minimal control over the affairs of its residents. After serving as the leader of the Free D.C. movement, Barry married his second wife, Mary Treadwell, in 1972. That same year, he became the president of the D.C. Board of Education, and in this position, he would raise teacher salaries and expand student services. In 1974, after D.C. was granted home rule by Congress, Barry was elected to the D.C. City Council. On March 9th, 1977, during his divorce from his second wife, Barry was shot and critically injured while trying to defend the district building from members of the Hanafi movement, a breakaway sect of the Nation of Islam, who were storming the building and taking hostages. The bullet lodged in Barry's chest, narrowly missing his heart. Barry miraculously rebounded and soon announced his candidacy in the 1978 D.C. mayoral election. And since every mayoral election in D.C. history has been a Democratic landslide, the Democratic primary was the real election for Barry. His main opponents in the primary were incumbent D.C. Mayor Walter Washington, who was seen by many D.C. residents as nothing more than an executor of the federal government's interests, and D.C. Council Chair Sterling Tucker, whose main support base was religious clergy and corporate business persons. Barry, meanwhile, ran an aggressive anti-corruption and pro-civil rights campaign, creating a voter base of the black working class, white liberals, the LGBT community, and small business owners. He would narrowly defeat Tucker in the primary, with Washington coming in a distant third. And after defeating Republican Labor Secretary Arthur Fletcher, Barry was sworn in as mayor of D.C. on January 2nd, 1979. Shortly after marrying his third wife, Effie Slaughter, Marion Barry started off his mayorship of D.C. with a strong first term. When he came into office, D.C. was believed to be about $300 million in debt, 
In response, Barry led an aggressive campaign against deficit spending, and D.C. saw annual budget surpluses of over $10 million for four years in a row. However, in spite of Barry's famous summer employment program for teenagers and young adults, unemployment skyrocketed under his mayorship. Crime also became more prevalent, and this was attributed to Barry's mass layoffs of police officers. It was also around this time that Barry was first seen snorting cocaine at a DC nightclub. Nevertheless, Barry was re-elected in 1982, decisively beating former Secretary of Health and Human Services Patricia Roberts Harris. DC only went downhill from there. After another annual surplus, DC went into a $110 million yearly deficit as Barry had overcompensated for unemployment by creating an absurd number of new government jobs. Barry was also plagued by increasingly common accusations of drug abuse and extramarital affairs. Although Barry was re-elected to a third term in 1986, DC voters were so skeptical of him that for the first time since DC home rule was established, a Republican, D.C. Councilwoman Carol Schwartz, earned over 30% of the popular vote in a mayoral election. By the late 1980s, Barry's administration had essentially fallen apart. D.C.'s homicide record was broken three years in a row, and Washington cemented itself as the city with the highest murder rate in America by far. Barry's drug abuse was also becoming more and more evident. He regularly had slurred speech during press conferences, and he started showing up to work after noon and falling asleep in his office. Eventually, on January 18, 1990, Barry was arrested at a D.C. hotel while smoking crack cocaine with his ex-girlfriend turned FBI informant Rashida Moore. Consequently, Barry voted not to run for re-election as mayor, instead launching a failed run for D.C. City Council. In October of 1991, Barry began serving a six-month prison sentence for perjury and crack cocaine possession. After his release from prison in March of 1992, Marion Barry staged what was perhaps one of the most unlikely political comebacks in American history. Running under the slogan, he may not be perfect, but he's perfect for D.C., Barry was elected to the D.C. City Council. After divorcing his third wife and marrying his fourth and final wife, Cora Masters, Barry ran for a fourth term as mayor in 1994. Taking advantage of D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt Kelly's unpopularity following the transfer of the Washington Redskins from RFK Stadium in D.C. to FedEx Field in Summerfield, Maryland, Barry narrowly won the Democratic primary. The general election marked the closest a Republican has ever come to winning a D.C. mayoral election as Barry's past opponent Carol Schwartz put up 42% against his 56%. Barry's fourth and final term was rather unremarkable, but in his defense, the city he received wasn't in great shape under his predecessor. Over the second half of the 1990s, Barry was essentially forced to cede authority over the DC's finances back to Congress in order to avoid insolvency, functionally destroying the home rule he had once fought for. He did not seek a fifth term as mayor in the 1998 election, instead successfully running for D.C. City Council in 2004, 
DC would not regain full control over its finances until 2001. While on the city council, Barry was criticized for opposing same-sex marriage despite once being the face of LGBT rights in DC, as well as for his comments that called for Asian American business owners in DC to stop running, quote, their dirty shops. Additionally, he was arrested multiple times while on the council for tax evasion and driving under the influence. Marion Barry would serve on the DC City Council until his death from cardiac arrest on November 23, 2014, at the age of 78. Barry has a mixed legacy in America. Although outside of DC, he is best known for his drug abuse and seemingly constant legal troubles, within the district, he is remembered fondly by some for his civil rights activism and efforts to eradicate income inequality. A 1998 Washington Post article described his legacy the best. To understand the District of Columbia, one must understand Marion Barry. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I really enjoyed writing about it myself. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historia obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Spotify for Podcasters. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to spotify.com slash podcasters. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.